Welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable. It's been a while since we've uh, been together for this uh, podcast time, so it's uh, great to be back here recording some of these uh, episodes uh, for our Pastors of the Roundtable podcast. This is the Discipleship Podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. It's brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. And as usual, we encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. Uh, Sitting around the table, uh, again, the pastors here at the church, Tim Icoangeli, Scott Slater, and I'm Spencer Snow, uh, the discipleship pastor. So it's been a little while since we uh, started uh, this series of podcasts going through Christian denominations, or maybe it's better to say traditions, uh, Christian different traditions. So we've talked about Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Lutheranism, the Reformed tradition. This week we want to talk about the Anabaptist tradition, the Anabaptist tradition, which is a unique tradition which today many people would think about um, Mennonites, the Amish. Um, there's a group of people called the Hutterites who are also fall underneath this Anabaptist uh, tradition. And there's a, like like all of these traditions, there's diversity. Um, you're going to have people who we would consider more theologically liberal and others who would be considered more theologically conservative. So there's a spectrum here, um, as with all of these traditions. And so this week we want to talk about the Anabaptist tradition. Now, real quick, guys, before we go into this, before recording this, what would you have thought, or what do you think most people think of when they think about the word Anabaptist? Like, is there anything that comes to mind if they've even heard the word, or what comes to your mind? I think if they were to hear that word, even for the first time, they would probably just assume it's a Baptist church. Right. Like maybe a different denomination of Baptist. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I would have said the same thing. Just Yeah, or maybe... maybe I don't know, maybe like a more conservative one or something. I don't know what they, you know, right. more strict, more rules mm-hmm. than maybe your normal Baptist place. Sure. It probably depends, too, upon um, what right. group, like, you know. Was if in you, your if, area. Yeah, so, yeah. like, if you're from a certain, if you're from certain places where, for instance, the Mennonites or the Amish are heavy, located at then you might have one perspective of the of the Anabaptist tradition uh, contrasted with if you have a maybe more mainstream or liberal Mennonite church nearby that's going to skew um yeah. we'll see even then like before our conversation I don't know if I would even have thought a uh, Amish person or a Mennonite person was an Anabaptist okay I wouldn't have even put those together right right yeah, and they would fit underneath the umbrella, the broad umbrella of the the Anabaptist tradition. So uh, I've got a picture of a book by a guy named Walter Clausen here on the handout I gave to you guys, and it's titled Anabaptism, Neither Catholic Nor Protestant. And as with many of really most of the denominations that we're going to talk about uh, here uh, in this podcast, a lot of them, like there's the Reformation and what the consequences of that really kind of gave birth to a number of different Christian groups and traditions, one of which is the Anabaptist tradition. Because at the time of the Reformation, when the Western church split apart, 
You had one church that stayed with one side that stayed with uh, centered around the Pope in Rome. That is known today by us as modern-day Roman Catholicism. There was a group of people that, um, then there were people that didn't ally with them that may have been more Protestants, and those, the Protestants really kind of grouped together underneath uh, followers of Martin Luther and the Lutherans, and then there was another group of people that were the Reformed tradition that followed maybe more of the, of like John Calvin and people like that. Um, Presbyterians, kind of like that tradition. But then there's another group of people that that kind of uh, come out of this breakup of the Western Church, and that is a broad group of Anabaptists. There was actually a, quite a diversity of groups that kind of sprang forth when this uh, when when there was this um, breakup happening. There was a bunch of these other groups that as well kind of came out with the the Anabaptist tradition. And uh, so they're distinct from Catholicism and distinct from Protestantism, uh, what we would think of as being a, a Protestant. Um, one of the things that's interesting is uh, a guy who was a, uh, a Reformed uh, pastor at the time of the Reformation. He has a really cool name. His name's Wolfgang Capito. Wolfgang Capito. Um, but he has a statement about a guy who was an Anabaptist. And this was his perspective uh, as a Reformed pastor. And whenever he met the Anabaptists and interacted with them, this is, his, this is how he understood them, and this is kind of his, uh, his perspective on them. He says this, Now, we were not in agreement with him, this certain Anabaptist guy named Michael Sattler. Now, we were not in agreement with him as he wished to make Christians righteous by their acceptance of articles and an outward commitment. This we thought to be the beginning of a new monasticism. So what's interesting right away is that whenever the reform, this particular reform pastor looked at the Anabaptist, he thought this is a new form of, of monasticism. In other words, it's another form of being a monk or a nun in a sense, right? Of cloistering yourself apart. And also they were concerned about the, the Anabaptist being uh, focused upon a works righteousness mm -hmm. as well. So that's interesting from an early perspective. That was his, uh, the way he, he saw it. And I think that is in some ways a fair description overall of this tradition. In some ways, it's a, they believe a believer's baptism, which is something they would have in common with us, but they do so in such a way that they're almost like a new monasticism, a new monastic order where they are separated from the world to, and almost cloistered from the world. Um, in a certain sense, um, in a way that we as Baptists who come from a different tradition, not the Anabaptists, um, would, would not be. Um, so I think that's actually kind of a helpful uh, category to think about when we consider Anabaptism. So quickly, where did they come from? Well, they emerge out of what is called the Radical Reformation uh, during the, the overall Protestant Reformation. Um, so there were different types. There were the Protestant Reformation really took place, um, and these guys, the Lutherans and the Reformed, they were both um, breaking away from uh, the Pope and such. But one of the things they had in common, the Lutherans and the Reformed, is their churches were still allied with the government. So um, they they still had the idea that you had a territorial church. The people within a territory were Lutheran because the prince was Lutheran, and the church uh, that they attended was a Lutheran church, therefore you were Lutheran. And, um, and so state power was still at play here um, and such. But the Radical Reformation comes, 
uh, during this time, and and they're they're kind of taking another path and really kind of pressing the envelope of 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 uh, theology, but also of uh, kind of. In some ways, you get the feeling that there was this this idea that it's time to change and almost transform the church, but maybe also bring the kingdom of God in a sense here and now. And it did eventually lead to some violent revolution um, uh, during this time. Uh, let me continue. I'm looking through here, through the handout here that I've got here. Um, there was The Radical Reformation had a lot of different types of groups. So one group of the Radical Reformation would be the Anabaptists. These were people that rejected infant baptism. They emphasized a separation from the world, and they would be probably the closest to us in uh, as far as Christianity is concerned. But there were other groups that were part of this overall radical reformation that were really pressing the envelope. There were some people who were uh, spiritualists and what they were doing was they were emphasizing, and doesn't this sound similar to today? They would emphasize the inner witness of the spirit um, who speaks directly to believers. And some of these people actually pretended to be prophets. So you have an emphasis upon the internal spiritual thing. And it makes me think of today when people come up and say, God told me this. Or the Spirit told me this, and instead of us, instead of saying the Bible says this, they're they're emphasizing some inner spiritual voice or conscience they think they have, and they would also really press against externals like baptism or the Lord's Supper as perhaps even unnecessary. And then there's a last group which was which would be even anti-Trinitarian, um, who uh, emphasized the use of their reason in addition to Scripture, and so they would actually reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Now. Obviously, the Anabaptists were just one part of the Radical Reformation, but it's important to remember that there was this radical element that uh, they were really pressing the envelope on some theological issues compared to what other people were doing as well. Well, eventually this leads to different responses, in a sense, to uh, this radical nature of, in, for, for instance, especially in Anabaptism, some uh, some, or, or perhaps we should just still talk about radical reformers. Some expressed their ideas through revolution. There was a guy named Thomas Munzer who um, really led about and was more about revolution. You think almost about um, you know more violent revolution. But then there was also people later on, like Minno Simons, who is kind of where the name Mennonites comes from, and he emphasized pacifism. So on the one hand, you got violent revolution by radical reformers, and then on the other side, you have some who are saying, no, 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 we shouldn't partake of any kind of violence um, at all. And these people were persecuted by both the Catholics and uh, the Protestants. So that's, at the time, it was a really messy situation and such. And so you could see with all of this feeling of chaos, society feeling like maybe it's being upended, um, it, it, it must have been a really exciting time to live in. Um, Do you know if there are any connections like... Uh like today we have associations and stuff, not that, but like yeah. it, it makes sense to me how the Roman Catholic Church was united and together mm -hmm. during this time. And then you had Luther doing his thing. And so you can see a connection there with some of the other reformers. Sure. In the Anabaptist tradition as it was emerging, right. they're kind of spread out on the map some. Yeah. Was there still a connection between those churches or was it like almost independent movements yeah. happening? What do you, I mean, that's a great question. I'm not sure, honestly. Okay. I don't know. I'm sure there's some level was at least some kind of informal brotherhood or people knowing each other, but I don't know how 
I don't know if there was actually like a formal what we would think of as association or church connections. I don't know that. Um, and my struggle always with groups like this when they talk about seclusion is how do they grow? How do they do they believe in mission work? Do they believe in sharing the gospel? Because they wouldn't have a neighbor they're, if they're wanting to right. close off and not have a neighbor. I just, I've always wondered and was curious about their thoughts on, on that. Yeah. I think they would obviously be very missional in the sense in which I don't, by, by monasticism, I don't, I think in that sense, there was a concern. I think part of it is, is there part of, I want to be fair to them. Yeah. What I'm saying here much as well is not necessarily all like, for instance, the, the revolution stuff and everything. I want to say right away that that's at least with the radical reformation broadly, not necessarily with all the modern day Anabaptist groups. They would most of them, I'm assuming at least the Mennonites, the Amish, they would be pacifists um in belief. But um there's almost this idea that one of the things we have as Christians, I think that we would all share on the table is is that um the kingdom of God is not going to we're not going to be able to bring the kingdom here right now, mm-hmm. right? The kingdom of God, we we believe it comes through preaching, through the ordinances, um, through faithful church life, but we don't believe before the resurrection. Like, we don't think it's our job to transform society or to um, all those things. I think there's, um, it doesn't seem like, and especially one time I was talking to a, a more, he would uh, probably be a more, on the left side of Mennonite life. And he was, I, if I remember right, definitely using language similar to, it's our job to bring the kingdom here and now, which is a difference from us and the way the reform, we were, we're kind of, we're kind of more, um, I'm going to say pessimistic about the, the idea that mankind can bring about a perfect uh, kingdom here on earth. That's not really a possibility. So I think though that there maybe is more optimism with these groups as far as that's concerned, or maybe just within their own communities that they can do that. Um, I don't know. Honestly, it's been a little while since I've studied some of this too in depth. So um, my mind's kind of fuzzy on some of it too. Yeah. I just, cause like you said, I mean, when we, when you see this tradition and you see uh, Mennonites and you see the Amish, right. When we think of those groups, we think of them as being totally separated right. from culture. Right. And so it's like, how do they grow other than having kids? And that was my number one answer. <laughs> you know, they just have a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. I don't know. It just seems. I'm sure that, I mean, at this time, when we're talking about the formation of right. the Anabaptist right. tradition, right. I would assume that modern day Mennonites and Amish are different yeah. in pretty big ways. Probably. That, like those traditions kind of developed over time. Sure. I, I yeah. Yeah. I agree. But, yeah. Sure. But they exist now. And that's just what I'm right, curious about right. is like. Yeah keep seeing Amish you keep seeing their communities you know and so right. how how are they growing and do they even yeah. find it important at all to quote unquote evangelize if yeah they really think their way of life so, is right so one of the things I think that's I would say also there's also a there's a like there's a there are Mennonites that are not the kind of Mennonites that we think about that, right where the yes. set, right and for sure I know the, that about and Mennonite. one of the things I think that's interesting here I think that is the same is and this is one example for them is I think they would definitely be reaching outside their groups, 
but it would be the idea that the church ought to be involved, not simply as church in preaching the gospel, but it's also the church's job to um, bring about what you and I would think about maybe as more the state's role um, or whatever, but it's it's the church's job to bring about... Um, to do a whole bunch of other things. Maybe it's feeding the poor, feeding the hungry or taking care of the poor, doing more social programs. I think there's certain groups, at least it's fair to say of Mennonites who would see that as the church's job to do that as well, to take that on, to transform society, Mm -hmm. um, to bring the kingdom in all of those ways, which is what I would think that I, I don't think the church, I don't think our, our understanding of the church and of sin, the nature of this world, is that the church's job isn't to do that, and that it honestly can't be done really until the resurrection uh, takes place. Now, there are people that can do that outside of the church um, as Christians in your ordinary lives, but it's not the church's job to redeem society and to transform society or redeem culture. That's not our job. Right, but from my little knowledge of Anabaptists, it seems like it'd probably be the more liberal ones theologically who are doing that work that you're talking about of like feeding the poor, reaching yes. out, feeling they need to trans. And so I guess my question is more for the conservative side. Yeah. is like, what do you think of when you see Jesus telling people to go or to do uh, these yeah. things? What, how are you interpreting this passage? Yeah. Are you just interpreting it for your family? Like, well, that's my children. I need to sure evangelize them and, and teach them the correct ways. Because they're, you know, you're just trying to go in. I mean, That's it wasn't question. too long ago that Christians were asking the question about the Benedict option mm-hmm. of even us in our faith now of saying, has culture gone so anti-Christian that maybe we should just seclude ourselves mm-hmm. to save ourselves mm-hmm. from destruction? Mm-hmm. And the big pushback to that is, wait a second, we're supposed to be a light, right? Right. We that that we don't really have that choice. Yes. To go and do that as as Christians. Well, it seems like the groups that are prevalent today that I think about when you say the yes. Anabaptists that we see here, I see them secluding themselves. And so yeah. I just think it's two sides of the same era, though. It's either we transform society right. or we seclude ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And the traditional Protestant perspective has been no, the church's job is not to transform society. As citizens, we are in the world, mm-hmm. and we are salt mm-hmm. and light as citizens, but we've maintained that distinction between church and state, and I don't know, um, we've also had that idea that God has two kingdoms. A, 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 he rules his spiritual kingdom in one way, and he rules the earthly kingdom in a different way, and I don't know how comfortable um, the Anabaptist tradition is with that distinction. They almost collapse the two. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be fair, we see that in our tradition. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be fair to them, we can see, you know, we might look at people who are Amish and say, that's so weird. Right. You know, or even maybe what you're talking about on the other side of right. like, we're going to bring God's kingdom here. We might have people say, man, that's that's just odd. But definitely within our own tradition, I mean, I see it where we think our job is to change culture, where the church should be a beacon for politics. And, you know, that's how we're going to change cultures to get in this. And we should really be pushing this. And uh, I definitely see that. But I also see the other side. I see people who are like, we should have nothing to do with it at all. Yeah, right. And like what you're saying is like, well, maybe it's not the church's role, but as individual Christians, you right. definitely have a role yes. in your society. Definitely. But so you, it seems like there's there's a line somewhere and it's not really easy to define where it is. Mm-hmm. 
because we I think we would all say like yeah as a Christian living in your society you should function as part of that society um, and you're going to do that in a Christian way and at some point if somebody cares a little bit too much about that and sees that as their purpose then like in terms of transforming society mm-hmm, like what, mm-hmm, what, what you've mm-hmm, been saying yeah. so it just seems to me like a line that's not really defined easily um, sure. for, for people. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And I think yeah. that, mm-hmm. that probably causes some confusion. And I think perhaps too, it's interesting to think about this. Anabaptism was born in a time where church and state were so linked together that to separate yourself from the church was to separate yourself from the state. Yeah. So maybe in an ironic way, they've maintained that one, that, that same almost perspective but it's almost like we are separated from the state and the church. We're our own, you know what I mean? Instead of um, balancing and understanding, those are two realms that are both legitimate within their own spheres. And I'm not saying the Protestants didn't. The Protestants really understood that as well, but and did the relation a little, did that differently. But they always understood that the that the uh, what do you call them, the magisterial reformers, yeah, the yeah. other side of this, yeah. like that they actually didn't want the separation of the church and state they wanted this they wanted the two to stay together well they, yeah they i think they would say they were distinguished from each other but they definitely wanted the the yeah they wanted a a uh, an established church mm-hmm. that was state sponsored definitely they 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 had no concept really that they're and, and to be fair to them that's just the way it had been yeah and that i and I, I don't agree with that but i i could see why if that's just what has always been mm-hmm. then you'd be like okay um, yeah. Okay. A few things you should know about the Anabaptist tradition. I've got a couple of things here. I'll, um, one guy named Palmer Beckett says what he's got a thing. What is Anabaptism? He's got three basic points and he says, Jesus is the center of our faith. Community is the center of our lives. Reconciliation is the center of our work. Um, he says, being a Christian from an Anabaptist perspective is a combination of believing in Jesus, belonging to community, and behaving in a reconciling uh, way. That's just one uh, perspective from an Anabaptist about uh, what they what they are about. So, first of all, it's very important right away to point out the Anabaptist tradition is an attempt to to restore the New Testament church, not to reform the existing church. Um, right here, you can see, I got a quote here. It says here, I think this is maybe from, I don't know where that's from. Maybe that's from the United States Mennonite Brethren or something. They said this, Luther, Calvin, and their associates wanted reformation of the medieval church. The Anabaptists wanted restoration of the New Testament church. Yeah. And So what do you think about that? I mean, that makes sense to me of what they're saying because uh, Luther's objective wasn't to like start a new whole new thing. He wanted the Catholic church to better, better itself, yeah. so to speak. And so for us as Baptists, if we're being fair, we would argue he didn't go far enough in what he was reforming. And that's kind of what they're saying is what he's doing is just trying to tweak, tweak this religion. No, no, no. We think that that has went way astray. We're trying to get back to the new Testament of what it should be. And that's basically, let's wipe that out and start afresh almost. And that wasn't the that wasn't Luther's purpose at sure, all. Sure, sure. Yeah. I wonder, though, what happens if you're trying to be a restorationist? 
Um, the question, first of all, is should we seek to be the New Testament church? Because the New Testament church had a lot of problems too, the church during the New Testament writings mm-hmm. periods. Now, we definitely, and, and I think that's the thing, is Luther and Calvin were not saying that the New Testament shouldn't govern the way church life should function. Mm-hmm. The diff, there's a, But there's a difference in nuance whether or not we're here to take what is and reform it however far you think you need to take that reform, or are we just scrapping everything basically and starting fresh? Yeah, that's the problem, right? They're right? doing a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking here because you're just going to take 1,500 years <laughs> Explain I don't know that, what that term. Means. Explain that term, Scott Tim. It's very easy. Explain what a quarterback is first. Of all. <laughs> I know what a quarterback <laughs> is. You turn. That's a horse, right? You really don't know what you really don't know what Monday morning quarterback means. No. I don't. Okay, so it's like <laughs> winner football. I feel like games. I'm coaching. I'm coaching our middle school girls team right now. Like this is a ball. <laughs> you put air into the ball. Oh boy. No. So, okay. So yeah. what I mean is like it's easy to look back and to say you should have done this this and this oh yeah, it's easy to look back and sure. do that and so what they're doing though, is 2020 what is scary with the way that anabaptists are approaching it is they're wiping out 1500 years of christian history and so like okay at what point are you saying we're going to go back to 300 right. 400 right. 500 600 when right. did it go astray and and we should just wipe it all out right like all of it gone and and you're telling me that when was the perfection, I guess? They're saying at some point there was a perfection right. that they're trying right. to bring back. And I still hear that today. Yeah, I hear that from churches today. Mm-hmm. Oh, we want to be like the New Testament, so we're just going to meet in houses. Yeah, You think that's what the purpose was? Right. That's what made them good as they met in houses? That, yeah, that was, that's the key. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wait a second. Yeah. Even those churches had problems because Paul's writing to churches. <laughs> You're all messed up. Even <laughs> yeah, even the account I have pointed this out to the to the youth because I've I've mentioned this several times on our podcast. We're studying Acts and even in the book of Acts you see that there are problems within the New Testament church. Yeah. You know, there are people who are hypocritical yeah. and lie mm-hmm. and are judged for it. And it says that the response of that judgment is that everyone uh uh became afraid in a sense like mm-hmm. they saw that whoa like I yeah. need to watch out here um and so trying to become like the new testament church as if that's going to solve all your problems right that doesn't make much sense but i think you said this tim and maybe a little bit even different nuance to it is that i i think we see this kind of dynamic even within our own denomination of southern baptist churches where it's like there are some people who see problems in the denomination, and they say, okay, well, let's stay here, let's fix a couple of things, let's tweak things here, tweak things there. But then you have other people who are like, nope, out, you know, uh, overboard, let's throw it all away, let's start something totally new. So, I mean, I'm just pointing out, like, this kind of dynamic seems to have just stuck, you know, all through church history, you know, from mm-hmm. this point on, of just you have people who want things a little faster, um, a little more aggressive, Um and that seems to be kind of what they're thinking. Yeah. And we've just tended to say that that's the New Testament church or that's right. the early church. And we often forget that there are there are dangers with that. Yeah, I mean, that that's an easy thing to say, I think, for churches is, oh, you know, we're just trying to be like the New Testament church. That's right. an easy, like, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say sure. that? What do you mean by that? Because sure. even yeah. you want an- widespread persecution. <laughs> <laughs> well, like even with the Anabaptists, I mean, you have um in here, 12 Principles of Anabaptists. You didn't mention it. It comes from the U.S. Conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches. Number one, a high view of the Bible. Okay. Right. Everybody says that. Right. 
What church doesn't say that? If you're a if you're a Protestant church, <laughs> yeah. or or they're not Protestant, but yeah, if you, yes, you should have that, right? Because they say that, but then they go on to say other things that were like, wait a second, I don't think that's a high view of the Bible. Mm. Mm. If that's your main focus, like you were saying, reconciling the world and culture, like wait a second, that's what the, we're supposed to do. Right. That that's what we're gonna do. Right. I think the Bible says something actually really different. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you have a high view of the Bible. Right. And yeah. So, the New Testament church thing to me is the same type of yeah. language. Yeah, and I think that's it's helpful because while I would say, and I I, I think we would all agree, the, the during the Middle Ages, the church got really yeah jacked up. Mm-hmm. There was some bad stuff, and structurally, I mean, we would have differences over um, the ordinances of baptism, supper, but that's, and so... We acknowledge all of that, but the question is, did the church cease to exist? Jesus said the church would never stop to, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Can God work even in spite of all of those external problems and theological problems, but did the gospel get extinguished? No. No. And that's the wonderful grace I think we see is there is no, no denomination can claim to be perfect. The amazing thing is that God works in any of us, and he takes it all. And the gospel is is powerful enough to penetrate and to be simple enough about, you know, Christ yeah. is able to save in all of these situations, and he was able to save in the Middle Ages. So there was a church there. Now, maybe it got clouded. Yes, that's why the Reformers even said, we got to go right. back, and we disagree with certain of the Reformers. But we all have that general emphasis, though, that the New Testament, the actually the whole Bible governs our church life and our practice and our beliefs. But it's it's a different emphasis whenever you start moving from Reformation to saying, well, we got to restore. I mean, think about it. The Mormons are restorationists. They believe the church was lost and it was only restored with Joseph Smith at yeah. this time. Whenever you get people talking in this language of restoration rather than reformation, I get a little uncomfortable because it also starts to sound like innovation. So I, that's what I, that's where <laughs> I was know? going. I think the, the non-denom churches were, is what we're talking about today. Mm. They're like the new Anabaptists of Yeah, that's of a this. good point. Is, and, and what's interesting is a lot of the non-denominational churches are starting to do tactics that they did in medieval times that the reformers wanted to change sure. with their worship sure. in different styles. But uh, yeah, they're, you know, you see signs of like, we're not your grandma's church. We're we're different. <laughs> and I always struggled with that with these non-denom churches because they say they have no history. Right. They're like this new thing. And a lot of times they'll say we're going back to the New Testament way. We're going to follow Jesus's words. We're going to love each other. That's going to be our focus. We're going to do anything we can to reach people with the gospel. And they just erase all this past history, to me, it seems like, of the of the church. Yes. And they come into these all these other problems right. that, that they're facing. Um, but when you were talking about that, that's what came to my mind was the whole non-denom, whatever you want to call right. it, movement that's that's going on now. Sure. And I can, I don't want to act like, and none of us do, that the original Anabaptist or even Anabaptist today that there's no true Christians and I mean no that, that but, was going to and be I my... don't want to I don't want to deny that either I just think that this is a difference in maybe emphasis or that was going to be my point but it can lead to yeah. bigger implications yes. if not that was going to be my point there's yeah. a lot of those non-denom churches the way they do church I would say that church needs to stop being a church 
But I also would believe, I, I, I do believe yeah. there are people in there who are Christians, whose God, God has used what I would say is some bad theology, some bad practice of ministry, but God has still used that in their life to save them and redeem them. Right. And so I don't want to minimize that, but I also don't want to say it's okay to do that that way. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. You get what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I think too, another thing real quick before we move on is that it's always important for us in our own denominational tradition, but then also within the broader understanding of church history and as Christians and as we live our lives to realize we received the Christian faith. Yeah. Ultimately from God and Jesus Christ, the truth about who he is. But then we received it from Christians before us who received it from Christians before us. So we're all receivers and we're just passing down. If we start to act as if we've come up with something brand new, I understand that some people can say that for I'm, I, I guess I can say good intentions, but I just think that's a, a thing we have to be really careful about. And there's, I guess, in a sense that cultivates, or it should cultivate a humility on our part that um, we want to be faithful to the Bible, but as it's been passed on to us as well, and just be honest about that. Yeah, and I, 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 was, I was thinking of this, the aspect of the humility that we should have in this as well, because what we're also, I mean, we can talk about these different groups, non-denominational, Anabaptist, uh, Mennonite, Amish, whatever, um, even though non-denominational churches and those churches are very different. Um, We also, I think, would understand that there is a tendency throughout history to always drift away from the truth and from what has been given to us in Scripture and we are very tempted all the time to innovate and to change things. And so, you know, and just the concept of, well, what should we do to change things to, to actually make it healthy? Should we reform or should we uh, find revolution, you know, in that, that sense? And just at the same time, like we, and in our own tradition, always have to be thinking of where have we drifted? What, have, what do we need to reform? You know, and and try to correct. Not that we're trying like, well, we need to get back to the New Testament church, but just the recognition that we are just as susceptible as every generation that is before us to fall into a way of thinking that is not biblical, uh, that is not correct, theologically even. And we just need to approach conversations like this with humility. Correct. Like what you said. Correct. That just made me think of Good that. Good point, Scott. Um, so... There's a difference in emphasis about rest, restoring the New Testament church. The second thing I think is one that's really important, and this is the, and this again, there's just a broad brush. I'm stealing this from the Global Anabaptist Mennonite Encyclopedia online. You can look at it online. Um, so this is from stuff online, and I want to preface this with I realize there are Mennonites and people in the Anabaptist tradition who would not agree with everything I'm going to say here. There are more, probably more evangelical, um, closer to our understanding of sin and salvation, but this is at least um, on this website for an encyclopedia of the tradition. So it, it, take it for what it's worth. Um, so the, one of the things I want to talk about is, is that what is the problem that mankind needs to be saved from? Original sin. And one of the things you see here um, at least from this encyclopedia article, is that the fall of mankind into original sin inclines humanity to evil, but is not total or debilitating. What we see here, and the reason we talk about original sin is because what we think the problem 
is, is going to have ramifications for the solution that is needed to save us. This is what Anabaptism, at least according to this article, believes about our problem in sin. They say this, Anabaptists have a unique approach to original sin, an approach that supports their understanding of salvation. They they affirm the historical reality of original sin, but deny that its power over the individual is final and absolute. That is, they hold that evil has entered the world through the first human parents and that all people are sinners because of the ongoing effects of that act. Yet the effect is not understood as total and debilitating. Something of the image of God given with creation remains. This point provides a po- this provides a point of entrance for the spirit of God. As well, this gives the person as such the capacity to exercise a free decision with respect to the invitation to salvation. In the light of the above, it is understandable that Anabaptists have had some appreciation for the position of Pelagius rather than Augustine on the question of free will. So that's obviously incorporating some early church, uh, a very famous dispute that's uh, between Pelagius and Augustine on the question of sin, grace, and the will. Um, but really, one of the things right away we see is that while sin is bad, it's um, it hasn't totally taken away mankind's freedom to respond to God. We're not totally enslaved um, any thoughts on that before we move on? What does that do for our understanding of salvation then? It's kind of like, a, hey, God, meet me in the middle. Here. Right. I'm going to go so far. You go so far. Right. But, you know, it's like if I'm going to if I'm gonna go pick up my nieces because they're going to come spend the night, but they live two hours away, hey, let's meet an hour away, right? So we can meet in the middle, and then I'll take them, right? There's work on them, Correct. work on me. We're going to meet in the middle. But the Bible just speaks of something very different of like, there's no meeting in the middle. God had to come here, Jesus in the flesh here, right. to reconcile fully what I can't do. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't do it. There's, I can't go one step. I couldn't go one inch. Jesus didn't have to just partially die. Right. He had to die all the way Yeah. and raise all the way for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. What denominations, so I guess one of the things that's interesting here is this is actually a perspective that would in some ways be closer to what Roman Catholics teach on original sin and Eastern Orthodox mm-hmm. teach about original sin over and against what like a guy like Martin Luther or the Reformed tradition was teaching. One of the things you notice right away is there's a different understanding of mankind's problem. Mm-hmm. Um, one one side's to varying degrees says it's bad, but it's not so bad. And then the other side is saying, no, the problem is so bad that we have to have God come and save us completely. So you see two basic camps mm-hmm. that all traditions are going to uh, answer that question in two basic ways. Um, and that's obviously going to influence what you think salvation has to look like right? Um, and such. Okay, so Christ obviously came. He's the sinless Savior. He atones for all. Um, then it says this, sinners are saved by experiencing forgiveness, transformation, and discipleship. Again, I'm quoting from the Global Anabaptist Mennonite Encyclopedia Online. Um, it says, uh, Firstly, salvation encompasses the entire person, impinging upon every dimension of life. The person becomes a new creation through repentance and amendment of life. Secondly, it is the whole Christ that saves. That is, the work of justification is understood as the incarnation of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ in the disciple. 
One cannot find in Anabaptism the typical Protestant distinction between justification and sanctification. Um, so I want to ask this question. Is it important that we distinguish between sanctification and justification, or should we not really worry about making that distinction like the Anabaptists? That, at least this article says the Anabaptists don't really worry as much about distinguishing between those two things. I mean, I would say it's very important. I think justification yeah. is the work of Christ in our life, and it's final. He saved us. Outside of us. Yeah, he saved us by we his have, grace. Yeah, we have no part in our justification. Right. We we do have part in our sanctification. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I still think sanctification is a work of God in our life mm-hmm. that yes. uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, it mm-hmm. says that the Bible says that um, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then because of that, yeah. We can overcome sin, right. right? We can grow. The Holy Spirit does that work in our life, and and we we hope every day to be better, I guess, right? Yeah. To to sure. overcome these the sin and the struggle of of sin. Um, but yeah, that distinction is real important that we said at the beginning. The final working of Christ in justification. When you take that away, then I have to go to bed every night wondering, right? Or you have to tell me that when he saved me, he made me perfect, and so I don't have to worry about sanctification. I mean, that's the right, two options. Right. Yeah. So the yeah. two the two errors that we could come here is on the one hand, we can totally separate justification from sanctification to the extent that people can say, "I've got Jesus as my Savior." Who cares? But about everything, it else. doesn't matter about sanctification. That's not what we're saying. So Paul says that, right? Should I keep on sinning? Right. No. Yeah, no. No way. On the <laughs> other hand, if we blend the two. This is actually what the Protestants were pushing against Roman Catholicism because Rome was saying, you are only accepted by God, justified, to the extent that you are actually yourself holy. Yeah, right. So you have to personally transform your life by God's grace, God's mm-hmm. grace, in, but transforming you so that with God's empowerment, you become a better person. And as you become a better person, you become more acceptable with God. Mm-hmm. So the, they essentially got it out of order. Well, the, yeah, they kind of, yeah, you're sanctified in order to get justification. And we would say the opposite. Right. We would say you're able to be sanctified because you have been Amen. justified. Correct. Yeah. So in a sense, I think you think about it, justification is Christ for us. Sanctification is Christ in us. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus gives us both. And it's like a, it's, it's a double benefit we get from Christ. But it's important to understand their order, their logical relationship to each other. Um, not to pull them apart too far because we don't want to say, because everybody who's justified does get sanctified. Um, but we also don't want to collapse them into, mix them into one category, which it seems as if the Anabaptists are, to be fair, seem to at least be willing to muddle it to some extent, according to this article, at least. Yeah, I, mean, I think it goes like, totally against Hebrews. He died once for all. That right. we don't, he doesn't have to keep offering right. sacrifice for sins like the old, right. like the old form of uh, forgiveness, right? And that's kind of what I feel like is being taught when you when you muddle the two together, right? Is you're constantly having to prove yourself over Correct. and over again. But the Bible says, for salvation to take place, right. it's not an over and over and right. over again. We are justified because of Christ alone, but then we are also justified because of Christ's atonement mm-hmm. alone. Yeah. Something yeah. something a little bit later in that quote that you uh, provided, Spencer, says that salvation is experienced through the interplay of forgiveness and discipleship. 
what do they mean when they say discipleship? Like in this tradition, what does that mean? I honestly don't. I that would be a great question to ask them. I don't want to. I do not know. I don't because I know that like the Amish and the Mennonite communities are very close, mm-hmm. and there's base there's like a I know that shunning is like a big thing. Like when they would come, somebody would leave the community, and I didn't know if they were in like um, participation in the church life we talked about earlier was like a distinction of them and. I just didn't know if by discipleship they basically just meant continued participation in the faith community. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if they mean that or a holy life. I I, I would hesitate to speak for them um, in that sense. Okay, one last. Well, this is under the salvation part, and I know we've taken up a lot of time, uh, but this last part under salvation is very important. Because Anabaptists, at least some, have been weak, to say the least, on justification by faith alone, which to us is, as far as the doctrines of salvation, is right up there. If we don't have this, um, we lose the gospel. And so this article says this. Again, uh, let, me, let me see real quick. Actually, this first one I'm quoting from Timothy George, who is a, uh, um, was a I don't know if he still is officially a Southern Baptist, but... Um, a theologian. He said this, Minnow, talking about Minnow Simons, the guy from which the Mennonites get their name, Minnow and the Anabaptists generally did not accept Luther's forensic doctrine of justification by faith alone because they saw it as an impediment to the true doctrine of a lively faith that issues in holy living. Melchior Hoffman, which was an Anabaptist guy, I'm assuming, lambasted those who cried, believe, believe, grace, grace, but whose faith was fruitless and dead. Another article here, from uh, again from that Global Anabaptist Mennonite Encyclopedia, says this, Anabaptists seldom used justification to describe their own views, for they approached the issues involved from a different angle. Like Protestants, they emphasize that God initiates the salvation process and that individuals enter it through faith, yet they often complain that Protestants which would be Lutherans and the Reformed, by emphasizing faith alone, minimize sanctification, and encourage sub-Christian behavior. This is a common critique of you cannot emphasize grace too much because people are just going to go sin. Well, hang on. That sounds just like the epistle of Paul to the Romans. You're going to emphasize grace so much that I can go sin now? And Paul, of course, says no, but I don't think anybody reading the Anabaptist understanding of salvation, at least according to these articles, would get the idea that you don't have to live a holy life to get saved. They did read Paul's letter to the Romans 3, 4, and 5, chapters 3, 4, and 5, and at least Paul is feeling like, I've got to answer this question because people are going to think this is too good to be true. But you never get that feeling from the Anabaptist tradition to where I get that point to where it's like, this is too much grace. What do you guys think? Good job. Okay. <laughs> I would like to know a little bit of the the historical context that they're talking in and, and about because I think that that, based on my little knowledge of like what the church was like at this time in the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of that just uh, like the uh, – Shoot, what are the things like the sacraments that mm-hmm. you would do? The sure. the the empty actions. What do you call those? The the just the root the routine actions that you would go through. The sacraments, just, yeah, the sacraments, but the routine of it, the the ceremonial mm-hmm. aspect of it, but not having any kind of real 
sure. faith in your life that yeah. is working itself out sure. in sanctification. Sure. And that might even be why they, they lump justification and sanctification together, because, like, I'm wondering, is this a reaction not theologically or from biblical interpretation, but is it a reaction to the religious uh, air about them of dead religion, and they wanted to guard against that? Right. Well, I think what's ironic is actually they have the same basic viewpoint as Roman Catholicism on salvation. Then it's that's right. why the that's why the yeah. Reformed look at it and says this is what we just left. Yeah, exactly. This is a new monasticism. Uh-huh. Um, because the the refer the it's interesting. The Roman Catholic theologian Robert Bellarmine said at the time uh, this is during the time of the Reformation times. He said the greatest heresy of Protestantism is the assurance of faith is the assurance of your salvation. Mm. We can't tell people they're going to heaven because, you know, I mean, like, I don't know all his reasonings for saying that, but he's, you know, that's, that's, um, that's a, a Roman Catholic theologian. So in actuality, these traditions, which seem at some instances polar opposites, actually have some very substantial similarities when it comes to original sin, our problem, mm-hmm. and then to how we're made right with Christ, God mm-hmm. through Christ. Now, obviously, I don't want to say that Back then, every single person who was an Anabaptist believed all those things. I'm sure there were more evangelical about ones. These articles, yeah, but this is a right. generalization yeah. that yeah. I think is fair to apply to many groups. I was um, just pointing out that I don't. I would just like to know why do they think that? Right. Like, what's the re, what's the source? Is this because like there's a they were interpreting Romans this way? Because that's what that's our answer, right? We already talked about that. It's like we look at the the epistle from Paul to the Romans, and we say, "Well, this clearly isn't right." But I know that sometimes churches don't always act the way they do because they interpret the Bible that way. Sure, but there's historical influence as well. Yeah, definitely. So definitely, I think this know. is the easy place to go, though, with the scandalness of how scandalous grace is. Mm-hmm. It's like no way, no way, grace can be free. Mm-hmm. I have to earn this somehow. I've got right. to do something. And so they go to the law. Right. I have to then, if, if I'm really going to be a Christian, yeah, God can give me grace, but I have to prove it every day. Mm. I got to prove it every day that I'm his by doing this and this and this. And if I don't do that, then I'm not really his. And it comes mm-hmm. down to motivations and intentions. Because if my motivation for doing good is to earn God's favor, that's a problem. Amen. But instead, my motivation, this is where I, it's, it's like they're not taking this into consideration. My motivation for good works is because of all he's done for me. Hmm. If I really believe Ephesians 1 through 3, if Christ has really done all that in my life, then far be it for me to not want to obey chapters 4, 5, and 6. Yeah. And if I don't have a desire to obey chapters 4, 5, and 6, then my question would be, am I really a Christian? Yes, I would question that. But if he really has done all this for me, and I've put all my faith in that, and I really believe in that, mm-hmm. then... I'm not going to serve him so that he loves me because I already know he does love me. I'm going to serve him because he loves me. And so I'm going to be sad that I didn't read my Bible yesterday, not because I think God's sad or mad at me. It's because that was an opportunity to know him more, and I lost it. Hmm. I lost it because I wasn't faithful to that, Hmm. right? I'm going to be sad that I sinned because I'm not honoring my father, who I should be honoring, who loves me so dearly, and I'm now disobeying. Mm Mm-hmm. Not because I think now he doesn't love me anymore. No. So our motivations and intentions behind why we do what we do for God, I think, are very telling, right? And yeah. and we need to be asking that of ourselves. One of the things that also comes to mind is, in some ways, they were very concerned about what we would today sometimes call cheap grace. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
The reality is, though, is the answer to that is not to say, yeah, no, there's no cheap grace. You need to work harder. The solution to that is to say, yeah, there's no cheap grace. It was very costly for Christ to get it for you. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the way to Mm -hmm. do this. But oftentimes our natural tendency Mm -hmm. is, and you see this honestly in Protestant churches, is I'm going to throw some new conditions on you. I'm going to start weighing you down, man, because Mm -hmm. there's no cheap grace. Mm Well, I'm I'm and, scared of cheap grace too, but but but, but my, again, how you how do you answer this question? Yeah, who got the grace for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I just mean like what I think of cheap grace. I think of being at vacation Bible school and saying, "Boys and girls, raise your hand if you want Jesus and go to heaven." Yeah. One, two, three, four, five. We had fourteen saved today. Yeah, congrats. To me, that's a cheap grace. Yeah. You're you're lying sure. to these I was, kids. I was gonna say like the the tension in this conversation between these two things that we're talking about is it's why we have to as pastors preach the whole Bible. And it's why we have to go through not just one part of Romans, but all of Romans. Because, you know, where at, in the beginning of Romans, Paul emphasizes so strongly justification by faith. It's in, it's in a few later chapters that he will say some of the strongest words about dying to sin. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. an expectation that you will no longer walk in right. this way. Right. And you have to have both. And so, sure. like, in our own church, in Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, there are some people who probably need to be rebuked for, like, wanting this cheap grace. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking of anybody specifically. No, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, but, right. you know, it's just like there are some who think, I all I have to do is have this easy believism, and I don't have to actually walk in holiness. I mm-hmm. don't love the Lord, but that's not a problem because I was baptized. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. But then there are also other people that need to hear the other side of it. Mm-hmm. They need to hear you are not saved because of your devotion or your your the way that you serve mm-hmm. consistently. You're saved because of God's grace, and that's it. Yeah. And people need to hear both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's that, hard. Yeah. To, I mean the the uh, the old the Reformation distinguished hard between actually I should say Luther and and Calvin, especially Luther, the law and gospel, mm-hmm. maintaining between God's commands, which reveal also our inadequacies to do that, and. Uh, and, but also then his grace, which is just pure promise. And we have to preach both um, in church life. Christians need both, law and gospel. And uh, But whenever we collapse the two, when the law or some new law we make becomes a gospel, well, then that's a big problem, isn't it? The whole Christ, the book, The Whole Christ. Outstanding. Sinclair Ferguson is this. Gold. Very hard to understand. It is gold. <laughs> it's. I would say it's an academic book, though. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's I, a challenge. You have the to read chapters is, over the again. The good news is, I believe there is a Ligonier video study with that. Now. Oh, really? Yeah, where he talks yeah. about it. Is yeah. it Sinclair doing it? Of course. It's a good. Oh, it's a good oh, boy. Book. I mean, I would encourage people to read it. It's, it's a challenge. Don't yes. get me wrong, but it's a good yeah. book. And it's not. I don't say a challenge by saying it's seven hundred pages. It's not. It's not like a real long book. It's just there's also the class. Honestly, you have to read each sentence seven hundred times. <laughs> honestly, the honestly what we're going through in uh, Sunday school devoted to God is also touching on these issues. Same by author, Saint Clair Ferguson, yeah. on sanctification, but he's already in the book talked about distinguishing without separating justification and sanctification, yeah. mm-hmm. making sure we understand the categories, but not saying, yeah. but not yeah, really good. Okay, well I see our time is fifty five minutes. We could continue on here, but um. I probably better bring this uh, this thing to a close. Do yeah, it's I usually, time for lunch. Do I usually play the the outro music as well? Yeah, and you talk a little bit, and then you okay. get okay. it louder. It's and... been a while since we've done this. <laughs> Sinclair Ferguson's going to be at T4G this year. He's a stud. My Yeah, Sinclair and Alistair. 
They're going out with a bang, man. Yeah, they are. Yeah, bringing, bringing the in Scottish the hitters. Bringing in they're the probably going to come and say, you should have ended this a lot sooner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those guys are. Alistair's going to say, you should come to my conference now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's full. I know he won't say that. It's full. I need to register for that. You better register. I know. I'm usually late in doing this. Shocker. Usually. So, okay. All right. Well, let's see if we can. There it is. There it is. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this. Um, we hope we've been fair, um, but uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. Hopefully it's prompted some edifying discussion for you. And uh, we thank you for listening. Uh, take care and God bless.